Welcome to North Boston Korean United Methodist Church. Here, we are a family that seeks to love others the way Jesus loves us and raise people up in His love. We are grateful to have you listening. Regardless of who you are, you are always welcome here. For more information, check out our website at nbkumc.com. Coronavirus is hitting record highs, so I really hope that everybody is doing well um, in the midst of our economy opening. Um, I hope everybody's doing well. We have been going through um, a sermon series on Acts, and uh, within that sermon series, was that we've actually been doing a two-part mini-series through um, through the life and the lynching of Stephen the Martyr, Stephen the Martyr. Um, So we'll just keep going right through. If you guys can open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 7. So... The passage that we're going to be covering is actually Acts chapter 7, verse 2 to Acts 8, verse 3. But I'm going to read. So I highly encourage you guys, you know, if y'all got some free time, to read the chapter, the seventh chapter of Acts on your own. But we're going to be reading from Acts 7, 44. Oh, no, no, no. Acts fifty, Acts seven fifty one, to eight three. Acts seven, chapter seven, verse fifty one, verses two, eight, verse three. Uh, we're reading God's holy and perfect word, so even if you guys aren't standing, um, please hold it with reverence. Stop everything that you're doing. This is the word of the Lord. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Uh, Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer?
God, we thank you for this beautiful Sunday. We thank you, God, that this is the second, the second day, the second week of uh, of Pentecost. And Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you love your people so dearly, that you have gathered us all to hear your holy and perfect word. God, I pray that you would uh, inhabit every room that your people is in today. Father God, that you would fill the spaces that your people are. Lord, we confess that it is only you who speaks. It is only you that gives word. It is only you that defines it. So God, I pray that you and you alone would be magnified, that you would speak to all of us, including me. Holy Spirit, that we would not resist you. Take us to the next level with you. Help us to really be able to have our eyes be open to the spiritual realm. Every single room that we inhabit right now, God, that we would be aware of your presence in this place, in every place that you are. For you do not dwell in buildings, but you dwell in hearts. So Jesus, would you make yourself known in every single life? We thank you. We give you glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So last week, we talked about Stephen and the, the circumstances around how Stephen got appointed as a leader. Contrary to popular belief, he was actually appointed to show the widows mercy for the Hellenists because he's not a regular Jew. He is a diaspora Jew. He's a... Hebrew Greek, so to speak, you know, he's um, a an Israelite that lived in in uh, the Roman Empire and moved to Jerusalem, and and so he um, appointed in mercy ministry, but his words are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. It says in God's word that his words were irresistible, irresistible. Now I want you guys to think for a second with me. Think for a second of the most eloquent person you know. Not necessarily that you know firsthand, but the most eloquent person you've ever heard. Do you have somebody in your mind? Do you have somebody in your mind? So whomever it is that you're thinking about, Stephen was better, more eloquent. It says that his words were irresistible. Last time I heard that, that um, adjective, it was used on a man or a woman in a different way, you know what I'm saying? But his words, not his smile, not his attitude, his words were irresistible. And so Stephen is blamed at this point. That's what we talked about until yeah, uh, last week. Stephen is blamed for a lot of things that he didn't do. Blaspheming against God and against the Holy Spirit. He's being blamed by the Sanhedrin for a lot of things. And if you guys track with me, if you guys look at the beginning of chapter 7, I just want to draw your attention to the very beginning of chapter 7. Chapter, this is Acts chapter 7, verse 1. It starts with, And the high priest said, because he's already a court, Are these things so? And Stephen says, Brothers and fathers, hear me. And that's how all of this begins. And basically, Acts chapter 7 is just this entire sermon or speech that Stephen makes for the case of Christ. But it starts out, The chief priest who is technically the judge in this situation, looks at Stephen and says, well, are all these charges against you so? And Stephen responds very, very politely. 
Now, I don't know the last time y'all were blamed for something you didn't do. I know when my mom blames me for something I didn't do, I yell. I don't know about you guys. Like, I was taking a, not to blow up my own spot, but I was randomly, we we all, a bunch of us took um, the Pottermore test on, on, on which house you would get sorted into. <laughs> <laughs> we all we all took it. Um, I don't know. I don't know why we did that. We just have too much free time. It's quarantine. Uh, but one of the one of the questions really stood out to me. It's like, what is your greatest fear? And it was like not being loved. You know, loneliness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But my greatest fear is being ignored or misunderstood. So I don't know about you guys, but when somebody tells me that I did something that I didn't do, my reaction is not going to be good. Because I didn't do it. You know what I'm saying? So, like, that's something that I, I, I wrestle with. Um, and so, from my perspective, it's pretty crazy that all of these charges are laid out before Stephen. And he didn't do any of them. He was just a leader in the church, serving people who relied basically on the church for welfare, preaching about the gospel in Portico Square, like, in Solomon Square, um, in the portico and like everybody's just like listening to him and all of a sudden he gets captured he's like oh you blaspheme against god and, blah, 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 blah. and he's like being blamed for all these things and he goes brothers and fathers hear me it's actually really really polite how he starts this off he starts off this passage as though he's actually in the temple preaching when he's actually being tried for his life you understand um so that's one thing that's very very important but i actually want to first i want to zero in on stephen's speech and then i want to zero in on stephen's death and i want to state this main idea stephen dies as a prime example of preaching the gospel and living out the gospel stephen dies as a prime example of preaching the gospel and living out the gospel. So we're going to learn a little bit about how Christians act in the face of civil disobedience, right? We've been talking about civil disobedience. What if the government is against the will of God, right? And in this context of civil disobedience and in this context of persecution, where living out the gospel might be, might mean going against the laws of the land, how does Stephen act as a leader in the church? And he serves as a prime example of teaching and preaching and living out the gospel, primarily because he follows Christ. So we're going to talk first about his speech, what he says to the government, and then how he dies. I want to first talk about his speech. He like I said before, he he introduces himself very, very politely. But another thing to note is that he is in front of Congress. It just so happens, it's like if America was run by pastors, I mean, I, I guess that's what they, low-key, that's what they act like, right? All the GOP members. Um, but it's almost as though, like, a, if a bunch of really, really conservative old pastors were all the representatives of government. That's kind of the situation right now. So he's in front of the ruling body and the preaching body. But he's in front of Congress, and they're basically putting him on trial. He could potentially die out of this, but he starts off as, brothers and fathers, hear me. And he goes into how Israel 
has disobeyed and rejected the prophets and the fathers of Israel from time to time. So he's, he actually goes through, I, I like to call this chapter an overview of the history of Israel in light of Christ. So it's six parts. The first part is God and Abraham. He first explains Abraham. Then he explains God and Joseph, second. Then he explains God and Moses, third. And that's the first part of the sermon that he gives. And then there's a second part. Now, he explains first how God leads Abraham out of Haran and how he promises all of these things, how Abraham acts, and then circumcision. And then he explains God and Joseph, how there was a famine in all the land, but God used the life and the suffering of Joseph to save Israel and then move Israel into Egypt, strangers in a foreign land. And then he uses the example of Moses to explain how God breeds Moses to be a leader and then raises Moses up. But the two key things about this part, this first part of the narrative that Stephen gives is the first thing. So traditionally, I don't know if this is a little bit all over the place, but traditionally Israel, when, so Abraham, Joseph, Moses, these three people are very, 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 very defining members of the history of Israel. Okay, we all know Abraham is the father of Israel, father of faith. Joseph becomes the prime minister of Egypt after being sold off into slavery. And Moses leads Israel out of captivity after 400 years of oppression. And so these three, these three members in particular are very, very vital members to the history and the trajectory of how God leads Israel. But the thing about this body, this ruling body, as they call themselves the children of Abraham, they actually really, really glorify these fathers. If you speak against Abraham, if you speak against Moses, you get killed. On the spot, you get killed because they're so over-glorified and they're so exalted. In scripture, when you just look at the language, you see that... There are like six centuries, like later, later on down the line, people, scribes even made revisions to further exalt these members, even in scripture. So like Israel not only held God's high esteem, but he held, they held these patriarchs to really high esteem. So the two really, like given that context about these stories, Stephen lays out these three stories and then the significance of how Stephen lays out these three stories. If you read it through on your own, you'll see the first thing that Stephen does is unlike Israel, he rewrites the narrative to be about God's promise rather than human realities. The first thing is that he rewrites this narrative of history to be about God instead of about about the patriarchs and about the fathers. And then the second thing that he zeroes in on is the disobedience and the rejection of the Jews. Namely, in every situation, particularly in the situation of Joseph and Moses, Stephen zeroes in on how Israel has never received well a prophet of God. Very, very, very interesting interpretation of the history. Okay? 
So why is it significant that Stephen starts off, it might, it might honestly, like if you're sitting in the ruling body, if Stephen starts rattling off God and Abraham, God and Joseph, God and Moses, in, to, in response to the question, are all of these things true, asked by the high priest, it might sound like really random. It's like if I asked Amy, can you give me a glass of water? And she says, well, H2O is hydrogen and there are two hydrogen compounds. And then there's the, you know what I mean? It's like very, very random. It kind of sounds like it's about the same thing, but it's really, it might not, especially when you hear the first part of it. But the significance, Stephen zeroes in on the fact that, not the fact that Abraham was a good man, I've debunked this over and over again. A lot of Sunday school, a lot of pastors preach about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob like they were. I just wrote an essay this past weekend, potentially calling Jacob a sociopath because they were so such sinners. They were such imperfect people, the patriarchs. If you really zero in on the history, I'm not calling Jacob a sociopath, by the way, but he had, you know, his tendencies. Anyway, but yeah, like they were very, very, very imperfect. They were sinful, just like you and I, okay? And Stephen, instead of zeroing in on exalting them, he zeroes in on their faith and their obedience to God's promises. So instead of Abraham being a good man, Stephen explains Abraham as a person who believes in God's word and intervention while not having anything that would guarantee the fulfillment of that promise. I'm going to repeat that one more time. So Abraham is not a good man, but he is a person who believes in God's word and intervention while not having anything that would guarantee the fulfillment of that promise. So instead of zeroing in on the virtue of Abraham and all the good things he did, Stephen says the redeeming quality of Abraham is the obedience in faith, the obedience that Abraham had to God in response to God's crazy, crazy promises. Similarly, Joseph obeyed God. And in Joseph's obedience, Israel, all of Israel was saved from a bad, bad seven-year famine and ended up moving into Goshen in the land of Egypt. And then Moses, well-bred in God's sight, raised up by the Egyptians daught, by the Pharaoh's daughter in a time where the where, where Pharaoh was killing all the young boys of Egypt an imperfect person that the Jews rejected and so in God and Abraham Stephen zeroes in on the promises of God and how Abraham obeyed God. He zeroes in on the providence of God in Joseph, but then in Moses, it takes a little bit of a turn. It takes a little bit of a turn. Stephen, in this third part, he starts talking about Moses. He starts talking about the circumstances in which Moses was born. And Stephen's a really, really good speaker. So he's like, he uses like really nice adjectives and details. He's like really good at telling stories. And he starts explaining the birth of Moses. He starts explaining how God bred Moses, 
right, to save Egypt. And then he mentions a point where Moses kills an Egyptian that is hurting a Hebrew slave. And Stephen actually condemns this as wrongdoing. Which means that Stephen is saying Moses' act of retribution was not it. I want to side note for a second. I want to side note just for one second. Because I actually think that even though this is not something that I need to zero in on for the sake of the cohesiveness of the sermon, I want you guys to know that when Stephen says, because Moses was a Hebrew raised up in the palace of Egypt while Egypt was reducing Israelites to slavery for 400 years. I don't know if that sounds familiar to you. But when Stephen kills an Egyptian man for whipping a Hebrew slave, Stephen actually does not condone that. And he uses that to show how Moses was still human. Not how Moses did a good thing, but how Moses was not a good man. So I, wanna, I, want, I want you guys to think about that for a second. That retribution in response to oppression is not the answer. At least not in scripture. That's just what scripture says. Um, and that's something that Stephen hones in on. Um, but Moses is raised up, raised up in the midst of deep oppression. He is raised up to be a leader in a very unlikely way. And then he acts in this way. And he starts getting involved in the Israelite community as this imperfect person that was bred by God. And what do the Israelites do? Two Israelites, Moses comes across two Israelites fighting, and the Israelites look at Moses and say, who are you to judge us? But Moses asks them, why are you fighting? You guys are, you guys are the same people. And Moses runs away to Midian, because that freaks him out. And that's when God approaches him in the burning bush, after 20 years, 20 to 40 years of being in Midian. And Stephen goes on and on about this. So starting from the story of Moses, Stephen turns it to be about the disobedience and the bad reception of God's people to the leaders that God appoints. The Jews themselves are characterized in this sermon by disobedience. They did not understand that God was offering salvation through him. And Moses is pushed aside. Chapter 7 Verse 35 says, This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This is the Moses, verse 37, who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Verse 39, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make us for gods, make, us for, make for us gods who will go before us. And so Stephen addresses, of the people of God, he addresses two things. He rewrites the narrative to be about God, the main character to be about God, and not the holiness of men. 
And then the second thing is, he actually reveals, starting from the third patriarch, Moses, he starts to reveal the disobedience of God's people to the ones that God has appointed. And then it moves into the idolatry of the calf, that their hearts turned from Moses. It goes on to, and then, and then the fourth part that um, Stephen starts talking about is the tabernacle versus the temple. So he gives all of, all of a sudden, he gives all these like scattered dots of examples of Israel. But the fourth example he actually gives is the tabernacle and the temple. The significance in that is that everyone, so, so because we didn't read it, Stephen basically says God's original place of worship was a tent in the wilderness that God appointed. But there were idol, idol temples all around Israel and other nations. And so they became fixated with this idea of a temple. And then when they used this tent of worship where the glory cloud of God rested all up until the time of David where David asked if he can make a dwelling place for God, but God said no. And in fact, it was Solomon that made this temple. But God's, God's presence does not dwell in man-made buildings. God's presence is not restricted to man-made buildings. What place can hold the presence of God? So Stephen takes like this random turn. He starts talking about Abraham. He talks about Joseph. He talks about Moses. And then after he explains the disobedience and the rejection, the bad reception of the Jews to what God's appointed had to say. He then turns the table and starts talking about the tabernacle versus the temple. And the significance in that is that everyone put value in the temple because the pagans did. The original place of worship was a tent. And God did not deem it important. The significance of that is that the Sanhedrin valued the temple more than anything. In fact, even the history of Israel is actually marked by when the temple was torn down in 589 and when the temple was rebuilt in the time of Nehemiah. So even that is a very, very distinct markers, even in the history of Israel. That's how important the temple of God was. It was almost, it was almost, it was almost like, it, was, it symbolized the presence of God, kind of like the altar of God, the altar of, of the covenant. And so he explains all of these things. He explains all of these things. That's the first four parts, these kind of scattered points that Stephen uses to explain God's perspective versus man. That God is the main character and that men are defined by their obedience, but that the Jews did not obey the people that were obeying God and put their value in things that were not necessary. What Stephen is doing here is he's starting to point out the legalism in the church, in, in, the, in the Jews. He starts to point out the things that the Jews make issues above what God says. Now, when you hear this, you might think Jane is 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 Stephen anti-Jewish? 
And my answer is no. Actually, Stephen is the very opposite of being anti-Semitic here. He is actually, his style is actually in line, like his very speech is kind of written like the prophets. So he uses, and this is, this, is the, this is the beauty of this chapter, is actually that in this moment where he calls out the Jews for overvaluing all these things that God does not care about and disobeying God and not receiving the people that God sent well, he actually uses the style of prophetic literature and he uses the narrative format that has been done before. And he uses intra-Jewish language. His language is, it's like, like every generation has lingo. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, every, every location has lingo. Some of y'all call, I, I know, I don't know why this comes to mind right now. Um, but like, I know Gen Z uses the word boomer, right? Um, there are like certain words from like the TikTok generation um, or the Visco generation. Uh, there, are, there are different words that we use, um, the generation right before. I know there are differences even in like mass versus New York. Mass uses the word wicked. Um, some slang, yeah, like something is wicked good. I guess, sorry, I died a little bit. <laughs> not, not that the word wicked is bad, I just never used it before. But um, like in, in New York, there are words like, you know, when it's really cold outside, it's brick outside. Or like when someone says, you know, it's like um, bet. Bet was like big in, in New York, like years before it like spread across the country via social media. Um, like the word for bet before bet existed was word. Um, and people say it together, like, word, bet, you know? Um, and those kinds of, like, lingos, they exist geographically, they exist generationally, and Stephen is actually using the lingo of the Sanhedrin. So he's talking as though he is an insider. And he's giving them a history lesson in a complete different perspective, using the example of three different leaders of the, of the importance of the obedience of God and how Jews did not obey God. For three different people, the reception of one leader, and then the tabernacle. So he's basically pointing out, it's like, oh, well, this policy is not biblical, and that is not, and that law, I don't know why, and that, why are we focused, and that, like, that's, that's kind of what, it's like if you sat Congress in a room and gave an A-push lesson, but with a whole other twist where you pointed out the flaws of democracy. Like that's kind of what Stephen is doing here in a very irresistible, eloquent way. But he actually drives it home some more. And this leads us into the second part of Stephen's death. But he drives it home some more. And the final two points or one point is his conclusion. That's the indictment of people not recognizing the Messiah and the nature of Jesus Christ himself. And that's what Stephen ends with. And that's where we find today's passage that we read together. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not observe it or keep it. 
That's Stephen's conclusion. All right? Uncircumcised in heart. Stephen, he, he, he emphasizes the importance of circumcision when he explains God and Abraham. That circumcision is a sign of the covenant. But he says that they are uncircumcised in heart. Stiff-necked people resisting the Holy Spirit. Which of your, the prophets did your fathers not persecute? If we take this into perspective, the Jews in the time of Exodus were people that were persecuted. And then they idolized God after God, God after God, nation after nation. And in the end, Judah and Israel, northern and southern Israel, both fall to Assyria and Babylon around 600 BC. They both fall. For 600 years, Jews are a colony. First of Persia, I mean first of Babylon, then Persia, and now Rome. And they are now persecuting another group, legally. Stephen, a diaspora Jew, not a Jew that grew up in Jerusalem, but a Jew that grew up outside and came back home. He is calling out their blindness, the corruptness of their action by means of the gospel, using their own example of oppression. It's like... How do I put this into perspective? Like if an American went and became an expat and came back and was talking to, if Congress were filled with pastors, talking to Congress with the language of the founding fathers, how they are tearing apart the marginalized people of color in this nation, particularly our black brothers and sisters in Christ. Like what Stephen is doing here is so crazy because during this time he can get killed like like that and so it says here now when they heard these things they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him but he full of the holy spirit gazed into heaven and saw the glory of god and jesus standing at the right hand of god and he said behold i see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of god and that is the last thing that stephen gets to say and that is the identity of jesus that he shows in this vision that he receives by god so if we backtrack, the, his conclusion is that the Jews are stubborn and stick-necked people. Why? They refuse to yield to the presence of God beyond the temple. So his conclusion, and this is so wild to me, because if you think about it, all this time, the Jews cared about observance of the law. The number one thing that Jews can do to be saved is sacrifices, burnt offerings, observance of all the days, all the festivals. But he's saying that what makes them stubborn and stiff-necked, what makes them uncircumcised, is not the fact that they are acting in accordance with the law of Moses. But they 
they refuse to yield to the presence of God. That they refuse to yield to the presence of God. Stephen explains here that true worship is acceptance of God's revelation and obedience to God's words. Like Abraham, like Joseph, like Moses. Communicated through Moses, the prophets, and Jesus. But the Jews don't yield time and time and time and time again. And he says, you have always persecuted the prophets. He's actually pointing to Isaiah. We've gone through Isaiah for six months, but did you guys know that Isaiah was murdered? Isaiah, the main prophet that foretold the Messiah, was murdered by his people. So, like, if we really think about the history of Israel up to this point, Stephen has a point that maybe they missed the point. That they were so fixated on what they should do and who they were that they were not focused on obeying God. The idea that God is doing a new thing never occurred. They were always 200 years behind. Which of the prophets did you not persecute? There's a difference between receiving the word of God and keeping it. That's powerful. There is a difference, like for example, there is a difference than saying, yes, I believe in God and actually living that way. There is a difference in receiving it and keeping it. And Stephen is saying, you've received God, but you have not kept him. And he says, amidst all the corruption, amidst all the persecution, like what they did to Jesus, because Stephen is basically saying, you guys unfairly lynched Jesus, right? Because Jesus was lynched. He was hung on a tree, okay? But what he's saying is the root problem of why you are corrupt is because you are not keeping. You are not in keeping with the presence of God. That the root of corruption in government and in religion was a lack of obedience to God. The root of corruption in government and church was a lack of obedience to God. A lack of submission to God. A lack of listening and obeying the will of God. When you focus in on the words of God more than the will of God, you might be receiving God's word, but not observing it. And then Stephen sees, and what's so beautiful about this, what Stephen sees is very biblical. Jesus at the right hand of God. That's in our apostles. I believe it. You know what I mean? He died on the, he died on the third day. He rose again. He is seated at the right hand of God. And he will come to judge the living and the dead. It's, it's a very fundamental part of what we believe in. That Jesus was not just killed, but that he was resurrected and then glorified, exalted. And that he sits at the right hand of God. But Jesus, here, this is the significance. Jesus is supposed to sit at the right hand of God. 
but he's standing. And Stephen's vision, Jesus, he's supposed to sit in a throne at the right hand of God, but in response to Stephen's witness, Jesus stands and receives Stephen's words. He receives Stephen's obedience actively, and he stands. When you stand, when somebody is speaking, that is an honor. And Jesus stands at the words of Stephen before the Sanhedrin, at the right hand of God in heaven. Jesus receives Stephen's words, and he gets to see it. And the identity of Jesus and the reception, and not just the reception, the observance of Stephen and the vindication that he receives in the standing of the Most High God, that God stands in response to his speech is crazy. God stands in response to Stephen's obedience. And he honors it. And that's the last thing Stephen gets to say. Why? They stop their ears and they storm at him and then they stone him. Now I want to focus a little bit, not too long, because we've got an application that we've got to get through. How do we apply this into our lives in light of what's going on in our church today? But I want to focus, before I get into the application, I want to just focus a little bit on how Stephen dies. They stop their ears, partially because they think it's blasphemy, so they think that the human ear shouldn't hear what Stephen is saying. And they storm at him, and then they stone him. They drag him out outside and they stone him. He says, Lord Jesus, do not hold the sin against them and passes away. He follows the example of Christ. This becomes a moment This becomes a moment, the death of Stephen as a leader of the Hellenist Jews becomes a moment of persecution. It's like when, not to compare Stephen to Hitler, but when Hitler passed away, all of Nazi Germany scattered and began to be persecuted by the whole world. When a leader dies, Everything comes up in the air, and they get scattered because the persecution gets severe. The church, most of the church, other than the apostles, have to leave Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. Devout men mourn Stephen in public after burying him quickly. And at the center of all this is a man named Saul. Saul approves of this execution, and he becomes the centerpiece of the persecution against the Israelites. Spoiler alert, that's Apostle Paul. Very remarkable story. Very remarkable witness. Very, very well written. Very well spoken man who exemplified God and lived by the power and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit until his dying breath. But Jane, though, like, we're not getting persecuted right now. Like, what can we really gain from all of this? What can we really get out of all of this? Like, how can we really apply this? And like, we're not, I mean, I'm not getting stoned. And this is true. 
the first thing that we can apply into our lives in light of the craziness that I just unpacked is the reality of Stephen's claims. I want to read you guys this quote from the commentary that I was reading, and it says, The fact that Jewish leaders misunderstood the reality of God's presence forces us to reflect on the sins that Christians and churches have committed on the rejection or marginalization of leaders who have called the church to repentance and reform and on the attempt to manipulate God through various programs. So the first thing to do is to absorb the reality of Stephen's claims like he was saying it right to us. Some of us here are like, yeah, that's the church. Yeah, like I stand, like I stand with the people that are persecuted. Like I wouldn't be on that. No, 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 no. The first way to apply this is to act as though Stephen is saying this to you. I was really... Um, Um, so a lot of you guys follow me on social media and you guys might know that for me, um, social justice is, is something that's very important, not because, um, not just because it's important to me as a person, but because I believe that it is essential to my faith that if my brothers and sisters aren't free, that I'm not free, that if the arm is bleeding, even if I got a bruise, we're all, my whole attention is going to be focused on the arm that's bleeding. Even if I'm the hand, it's still going to feel like I'm hurting because I'm a part of the body, right? And so that's why I view social justice to be important. But what was really brought to my attention is the failings of the Korean American church this week. Um, I was able to have a lot of, you know, challenging conversations with Korean American Christians, not necessarily from our ministry, uh, but from other places around the world and hear about different conversations um, that Korean American pastors have had, um, in particular about the issue of um, social justice reform in our country. And I've heard something like, can we support movements like Black Lives Matter if they support trans rights or LGBTQ rights. Um, that makes my heart break because it brought to my attention the fact that the people who need to be aware is our own community. And the people that might need reform personally are our own pastors, our own body. We are a member of a regional network within a rise within the Korean Pastors Association. The whole Korean American Church of New England is well connected. And this is an issue, a very real issue in the New England Church right now. And um, we need to not take these words on empty solidarity but we need to receive these words like it's our own because if our brother is, is saying things and prioritizing certain points that God does not care about as much, 
as the lives of his people, as the oppression that his people are going through, as this gushing wound in the body of Christ that has been bleeding out for generations and generations and generations. If we, if there are members in our greater body that is doing that, we as individuals also need to be able to receive Stephen's words like they're directed at us. The reality of God's presence forces us to reflect on the sins that Christians and churches have committed on the rejection or marginalization of leaders who called the church to repentance and reform and on the attempt to manipulate God through various programs. The history of the church is the history of God's glorious intervention and at the same time of abject human failure. That is the history of the church. In order, some of us might think like, oh, Jane though never preaches on grace. Grace of God exists for all of us. We sing about the reckless love of God all the time. How he chases down the 99 to save the one. Within an understanding of that grace, we have to accept our failures in order to be able to actually grasp the grace and the mercy of God. Because if you didn't fail, then you don't need that grace. And God doesn't address people individually. Jesus never just spoke to one person. He spoke to crowds. He spoke to nations. He spoke to multitudes. That's because if my sister is hurting, then I'm hurting. And if my sister is sinning, then I've got to do something. Because I'm a part of the body of Christ. But what is the reality of the body of Christ in America right now is that one hand is stabbing the other. Do you know how dumb that is? One limb is receiving pain and the other limb is doing the pain. So if we're alike, what do we do? We can't just receive it like we're the ones hurting. We also have to be able to hear God's reality check as though we are the ones doing it. Because there are members in the Korean American church that are doing it. And it takes, it takes the repentance of everybody to lead into action. It takes for all of us to come to the same page about the reality of the gospel and the presence and the will of God for us to be able to move together. Because right now, the body of America isn't able to move because all these limbs are working in different ways. It's like the, what is it? You know the, the AP, 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 what is, you know that, you know that game on the computer where you use like, APSW to like try to move the limbs. Do you know what I'm talking about? There's this, okay, there's this, there's this game where you have the controls of the limbs, but basically everybody fails at it and the runner doesn't move forward and he fails because he doesn't know how to move because we don't know how to do that. Um, because we don't think twice about moving all together, but that's what we are right now as the body of Christ. We have to think about the reality of the claims that it takes on our lives. Some of you guys might be spiritually dry. Some of you guys right now might be like, man, I want to hear about the presence of God. And let me tell you, this is the presence of God. Are you spiritually dry? Are you having a hard time praying? 
maybe you should start praying for the black church and see what kind of revival happens in your life. Are you not doing well spiritually? Well, then maybe you should start looking at what the church is going through right now and reflect on the gospel in light of what the church is going through. Are you feeling idle in the midst of quarantine? Well, maybe you should move. Not that that makes you closer to God, but it'll awaken you because our hearts are prone to wander, even though God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And our hearts are the ones to be distracted, even though God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we have a history of misunderstanding the will of God. So we have to know that about ourselves. We have to take the reality of Stephen's claims and know that we have rejected marginalized leaders who have rightly called on the church to repentance and reformation. And we have to be aware of our, our subconscious attempts to manipulate God by the wrong focus that we might take. The question then is not how can I improve spiritually, but is what is God's will? Where is God at right now? What Israel needed wasn't better laws, it was salvation and unity. Better things come out of salvation because the root of Israel's corruption was their disobedience. And everything will flow from there. If it doesn't flow from there, it says scripture that faith without works is dead. So if a bunch of people are saved, but nothing's happening, we have, to, we have to question that. We have to bring into question those things, okay? And we have to take into consideration that despite repeated arrests, the church at this time, the church of Acts, never gave up on the Jewish people. God doesn't abandon Israel just because people disobey and idolize and apostatize and fall away. And the church of Israel never gave up on evangelizing even when they were being killed. So we mustn't give up. Not because it's an unfathomable, unthinkable thing, but because our God is a God can do, that can do all things. We mustn't give up. We must continue to vocalize the will of God. We must continue to speak forth the will of God, not just social justice, because that's a band-aid for a wound, but speak forth the will of God for the church, that the church can move forward. I was listening to Matt Chandler talk about the history of the civil rights movement. And the history of the civil rights movement was that it was the church that did it. But now it's the church that rejects civil rights movements. We have left behind us the inheritance that we have. Demonstrations started with the church. But where are we now? Where are we in light of everything now? And lastly, I want to talk about how Stephen's dedication to God was not to government. Stephen was not concerned with the government. He was concerned with being faithful. He was concerned with being spirit-filled, unfazed by persecution. He was unwilling to compromise his convictions because God was watching. He did not fear men more than God. He trusted God and was a true descendant of faith 
as defined through Abraham. Does that mean that we completely ignore? A lot of people take that as, oh, let's ignore what's going on in our government. No. It's that our focus is not just on legal reform. It's deeper. The church of God is a big enough presence in this country that even if the church of Christ woke up, things would change rapidly. Rapidly. If the church of God aligned itself to the will of God in this country, nobody can stop what would happen. The exoneration, the vindication of his people. The unity. What are we missing? What are we missing? And where are we moving? Where do we stand in light of Stephen's speech? I've been repenting of all of the Korean American opinions that I've heard this week. And I've been so broken by the fact that we have a part to play in that. Because if the Korean church has voices like that, that falls on all of us too. But our goal is not to raise social justice awareness. Our goal is to speak forth the will of God. Where is the presence of God? How can we stop ourselves from disobeying? what God is already speaking into our hearts. How can we be aware of the presence of the Spirit of God? How can we be good with, how can we be satisfied with God and not fear man, not fear the opinions of people around us, not fear the potential persecution that might arise, not fear the repercussions of our actions, but actually move as men and women that love God, that trust God, because in light of the fact that Jesus Christ died for, for your sins, we need to move, not to be saved, but because we have been. It's a hard reality that a lot of us might not want to face, but we are privileged here. I wanna take some time to pray. From wherever you are listening, we hope you were blessed by this week's message. For more information, check out our website at nbkumc.com.